Corporate Oppression and Wine in a Can. I'm James Dapache and this is coffee on a case note. This week we are speaking about an Australian wine producer and we're speaking about a Japanese can producer and we are in the exciting world of wine in a can. Now, what happens is uh, over a number of years the Australian wine producer and the Japanese can producer have some interactions where they reflect on how their businesses might intersect and uh, things come to a position in about 2012 where they end up entering into an agreement whereby our Japanese can producer uh, becomes a majority shareholder in our Australian wine producer. So there we go, it's now a 60% shareholder. Okay. Another part of that agreement is a good faith obligation that rests upon our Australian company, that rests upon our Japanese company that's now a shareholder, and that rests upon our minority shareholders in the Australian company. Australian company, number of shareholders, one of the majority shareholders is our Japanese company. Yes? Okay. Now a Japanese company has a subsidiary company, forgive me, beneath it. And that subsidiary company is also a wine producer. And that wine producing Japanese subsidiary competes with our Australian wine producing company and particularly competes with our Australian wine producer insofar as the Australian wine producer has a role in China and Japan. So you can imagine just a little bit of underlying tension here. Well, things start ticking over and as they do, our Australian wine producer is not going quite so well as it had hoped and it gets some loans from our Japanese 60% shareholder from the Japanese can manufacturer. What also happens is that our Australian wine producer asserts that the patents it holds in relation to its very special can, wine in a can technology in Japan, and the patents it holds in relation to its very special wine in a can technology in China are being breached, including by our Japanese subsidiary. So it says, hey, we own these patents. Um, the Japanese subsidiary, our chief shareholder's subsidiary, are breaching these patents. Either they've got to pay us for the license or we have to go and enforce them. And what the Australian company uh, attempts to do is to go and enforce the patents in Japan and in China. Now, as you can imagine, <laughs> um, when you've got parties that are so closely interlocked, not getting along well, you are getting uh, very, very close to an application to wind up that company on just an equitable grounds on the basis of a deadlock. And that is the very application here that our Japanese majority shareholder made, forgive me. And two days later, our minority shareholders lodged a Section 232 oppression suit. So we've got the just an equitable wind up claim and the Section 232 oppression suit running and heard together. The proceedings were commenced just a couple of days apart. So what happened? The first instance comes to trial and the judge says, yep, there's enough of a deadlock there uh, for a wind-up and no, uh, the conduct is not enough to ground Section 233 orders for corporate oppression and that's because Section 232 oppression isn't even made out. 
And part of the primary judge's analysis, and I think it's fair to say the uh, leading part of the primary judge's analysis on oppression was to say there's a good faith term in the contract, that good faith term wasn't breached, and to oversimplify, but to give you the thrust of it, because that good faith term wasn't breached, there was no breach of the good faith term, and also there was no oppression. So that analysis of the contract breach and the corporate oppression was very, very close indeed. So our minority shareholders appeal. They appeal including on that corporate oppression point. And they say, look, the primary judge was wrong to say there was no breach of the contract, therefore there's no corporate oppression. That's paraphrasing again, forgive me for speaking so loosely. But in essence, that's how their argument might be treated in a reductive way. And so what the Court of Appeal had to do was to dive in and say, well, is that right? How do we find the oppression claim? Well, what our minority shareholders, our non-Japanese company shareholders say, is they say, look, there's this old decision about rayon manufacturing in Scotland in the 1950s. That's pretty much what happened here. And so uh, the oppression suit ought to weigh in our favour. And what the Court of Appeal did was work uh, through rayon manufacturing in Scotland in the 1950s to the extent it mattered in that original judgment and found that the facts were distinguishable. They were distinguishable because in Scotland, in our old case, there was real malice between those parties, between the majority shareholder and the other party. Whereas here, what the court found was our Japanese shareholder had actually helped out our Australian company. It had loaned funds uh, and it had tried to keep the company afloat. So there wasn't malice, but everyone understood what was going on from the start. Everyone knew there, were, there was going to be competition with the subsidiaries and all this sort of stuff. And so the Court of Appeals say oppression is not made out in these circumstances. So I hope you didn't need a wine in a can to get through that summary there but I hope you got a bit of an insight uh, into how appeal proceedings might come together in relation to uh, just an equitable winding up and in relation to corporate oppression. And thank you very, very kindly for your time. I look forward to sharing some more time with you over another coffee and another case note soon. Cheers.